Welcome to the podcast of Tech.eu, Europe's premier technology industry information portal and market intelligence platform. This is our episode number 120, recorded on June 3rd, 2019. Today we are going to talk about German publishers against the big bad tech, about a rise in mergers and partnerships in Europe, about the loss of enthusiasm about new technology, about VC branding, and much more. We've also prepared a pre-recorded interview with Christina Beckhold-Russ, the director of Samsung Next Ventures. I am your host, Andrei Degler, joined today, as usual, by our research lead, Natalie Novik. Hey, Natalie, how is it going? Hi, Andre. It's going well. I'm here in Park City, Utah, where I'm spending the summer, but my heart is still in Europe and also my internal clock. I haven't come on to U.S. time zone yet, so it's making my sleep very strange. <laughs> I think you're setting a record long period of jet lag. Like when you, you, you came there, what, a week ago? Yes, and I think I think that's accurate. <laughs> Yeah, I am also now uh, not where I currently live. So I am in Amsterdam, but I just moved to another city. I moved to Groningen. So right now I'm sitting in the middle of a, of an almost empty apartment. And just because I had a meeting here and decided to also do the recording here. So we're both in weird uh, environments. That's right. But still coming to you with a great podcast. Indeed. So let us talk about what has been happening over the past uh, week. And uh, I will start with a story. Uh, and uh, this one is that four uh, major German publishers uh, have come together to combat the de facto advertising monopoly of Google, Facebook and Amazon. So the publishers in question are Axel Springer, uh, Funke Median Group, I'm going to butcher these names, RTL Group and the Gruner Plus Yar. Uh, the companies uh, have agreed to form an advertising alliance that sells their combined inventory. So the supposed reach of all the publications that are included in this alliance is 50 million monthly unique users uh, compared to Facebook uh, that uh, has approximately 40 million uh, monthly unique users in Germany. So this new offering is actually going to be quite uh, compelling, at least uh, on the German market. And this is something that would totally never happened uh, 10 or even five years ago. Uh, but the reality of the industry has uh, changed a lot. And I myself worked in the print media uh, 10, uh, 12 years ago, and I still do remember how around 2008, 2010, more or less, uh, we saw how all the advertising revenues uh, in print uh, were dwindling. And uh, back then we thought, okay, yeah, fine, the money is just moving online. Which was true, in fact, but the only problem was uh, that we thought that the spending was moving to the online versions of our publications, while in fact uh, it moved to Facebook, Google, and all the other big platforms. So now, according to a report by Digiday, uh, the plan is to pitch the new venture to media agencies and advertisers and negotiate rates that lock-in spend across the year. Uh, should agencies jump on board, uh, then the publishing group uh, partners will greenlight a plan to create the technical infrastructure. Uh, 
This newly formed alliance is not actually the first one. There are uh, similar cooperative efforts uh, in the UK and also in Germany itself uh, with uh, different uh, publishers coming together in uh, different uh, forms and shapes. And also it's not the first time that these particular publishers uh, team up to do something uh, to confront uh, the big tech platforms. Uh, just three years ago in 2016, uh, Axel Springer, uh, Gruner Plus Yar, uh, RTL and Der Spiegel uh, pulled together their targeting data to a platform called Immetric. Uh, the idea back then was that uh, with more data, the publishers would be able to offer better targeting capabilities, the current lack of which is supposedly one of the reasons uh, why advertisers have moved to the big platforms and uh, stopped uh, spending as much uh, money uh, just uh, buying uh, an inventory directly from the publications. So in this new alliance, uh, the parties uh, cite uh, pretty much the same plans as before. Uh, they want to enable fine-tuned targeting and make an offering that could compete with that of Facebook. Now, if everything goes as planned, uh, this new infrastructure for the project will be ready by the end of this year, and I am indeed very curious about how uh, this will pan out and we'll totally keep you all posted. So, Natalie, you uh, lived in Germany before. Uh, what, what do you think of this? Uh, is it really that surprising that uh, these uh, publishers come together? You know, I'm not sure if it's that surprising because big tech is something that companies all across Europe have been looking for creative solutions, um, especially in the media industry. So I think this, this new partnership is a really exciting opportunity and also something that um, feels very, has a very um, German feel to it. Um, and so I, I think it's, it's very, it's very interesting how, how this um, has come about. And partnerships in general is something that, that I find really interesting and it's something that, that I'm, I'm going to be talking about in, in my story this week is it's something we're seeing more and more commonly across Europe and in a way um, to um, compete against big tech, especially from the U.S. Sure. Go ahead. Yeah. So I'm not sure if this is part of a new trend, but the reporting on a lot of these mergers, especially in Europe, has shifted somewhat. And I'm finding it pretty interesting. So I thought I would do kind of a rundown of some of the recent reports that we've seen lately. Um, and as some of you, as some of you know, um, I do some work in the auto tech space and it really raised a number of eyebrows earlier this year when we learned that the arch competitors, Daimler and BMW were, co were combining and joining forces and, on the urban transport division um, in an effort to compete with Uber. And it's very similar to, um, Andre, your story about the media companies, because these are kind of legacy companies in Germany. And it's, it's kind of a surprising that these kind of arch competitors would come together. And especially in, in the auto space, because these automakers are really longtime rivals. But at the time, the company said that together they would have the opportunity to outcompete the American tech giant in this urban transport space. So while we're waiting to see what happens next with that, um, on the podcast a few weeks ago, we mentioned the merger of the American car sharing company Get Around with Francis Drivey, which has created the world's largest car sharing company. And at the time, it was reported that the merger was for mutual benefit for both companies. And it appeared that both parties were really happy with the partnership and the European team was staying on board. But I've also noticed lots of merger activity going on beyond the transport sector. So let's talk a little bit about those. 
Last week, it was reported that the fashion subscription box companies Outfittery and Moto Mondo would join together. So Outfittery is based in Berlin and was originally created pretty much uh, as a clone of the U.S. company Trunk Club, which merged with the um, company Nordstrom in the U.S. Um, several years ago. So Outfittery has been around for a long time, originally founded in 2012 with two female co-founders, which is a pretty rare thing. And by contrast, Moto Moto was also founded in Berlin, but in 2011. And since its founding, the company continued to grow. And in 2016, they acquired a company called The Cloak Room, which was a Dutch-Danish curated shopping service. And with a few more acquisitions, they kind of created this uh, subscription fashion um, group. So together, both companies, Outfittery and Motomoto, specialize in curated men's fashion. And the new company, which will exist under both names, depending on which markets that they're going to be operating in, is set to compete with Salon, which is Zalando's curated shopping service, as well as competitors from the UK, including Thread.com and the American competitor Stitch Fix, who's entering the UK market later this year. So this is kind of a very interesting development, and it follows news earlier this month with the creation of Altito, which is a travel technology company that was born out of the merger of four different European travel tech firms. So B&B Buddy and the London Residence Club from the UK, Hintown from Italy, and Rent Experience from Portugal. So these were all profitable bootstrap startups in their own markets that helped to manage properties listed on platforms such as Airbnb. But by coming together, they realized that they were better able to harness their individual strings and have a chance to compete with larger competitors, of which there are a lot in this space. Also earlier this year, we saw the merger of the dog-sitting startups, Spanish-based Goo Dog and the British House My Dog. Oh my god, that's a lot of mergers indeed. I, I think I missed some of this uh, headlines, but this uh, this does sound uh, uh, like a trend is there. I'm just wondering what's the reason for this? So is it is it like just because there are too many companies in each niche and they just realizing that it makes a lot of sense to merge or are there external reasons to this? What do you think? So the reporting on these is all um, kind of interesting, but it's hard to really know some of the reasons behind it because as I've mentioned before on the podcast, despite diligent data collection, there's still a lot of information that's not reported when it comes to merger and acquisition activity. So it's hard to say. But what really stands out about the reporting on all of these is that they're described more as partnerships and join-ups for mutual benefits rather than, as you'd hear kind of in the past, a hostile takeover of a smaller competitor. So Outfittery and Moto Mondo competed for over 10 years from the same city. So the potential for hostility was really high. But all of these mergers, as I mentioned here, the reporting on kind of all of these coming together is really positive and talking about collaborative partnerships. And But don't get me wrong, we've seen lots of examples of hostile takeovers previously in Europe, especially in Berlin, um, the case last year of Movinga acquiring Move24, um, which was a really hostile, um, kind of very competitive situation. But in the press on these cases that I'm explicitly mentioning for the la- from the last couple of months, there's lots of mentions of kind of, quote, admiration for the other companies. And in all instances, the leadership from the smaller firm has stayed on in some form. Have these things changed or are these partnerships and mergers part of a new trend? Well, it's something that I'm seeing more commonly, but what's common about all of these, urban mobility, car sharing, holiday rentals, clothing, 
is that they're all in really big markets with established kind of huge competitors. And it's led kind of these companies to be pretty creative in ways that involve more than just outraising and crushing their competitors. So it's something I'll continue to follow and see if we can see more trends on this and kind of understand a little bit some of the dynamics behind some of these kind of mergers and partnerships. Wow. This is this is quite interesting. I'm just wondering also, like, would it be the case uh, that the press is underreporting uh, the uh, the situations? And I I certainly believe there's a bit of framing around kind of how these companies come together. But it's also a great story if it's kind of a something that is a very high drama situation, which was the case of Movinga and Move24, which are two German moving companies that really kind of competed like full throttle against one another for several years before Move24 um, ended up going bankrupt and was acquired by Movinga. Um, and so I think the press really does enjoy kind of some of these um, very kind of cutthroat competition and kind of these takeovers. But it seems like this is something that's very different. And I'm not sure if it's a new trend. It's something that I'm noticing. It might be anecdotal, um, but it's something definitely to to be watching. It's also maybe an outcome of kind of smaller investment rounds that we're seeing um, kind of in, in the growth and scale stage in Europe as compared to the US, where you would just outraise and outfund your competitor and just kind of take them all over. Um, and here it seems, especially with, with the case of Altito, where you have bootstrap startups that really kind of stayed away from raising a lot of external investment, you actually have the opportunity to, to do some of these partnerships and, and be very creatively with the ownership structure. So I think that's very interesting. True. Still, if you're listening to this and you know any juicy details about uh, certain mergers and acquisitions in Europe, we are all ears. Now, let's move on uh, through our today's agenda and uh, listen to an interview with uh, Christina Beckhold-Russ, the director of Samsung Next Ventures. I talked to Christina back at the Next Web Conference and you will hear uh, some background noise. So that was uh, what the press room <laughs> was like uh, at uh, the at the venue. Now we will be back in a few minutes uh, with events and recommendations. Hello, uh, this is Andre Degler from Tech.eu recording today at uh, the Next Web Conference in Amsterdam. And uh, here early in the morning, I am uh, able to catch up with uh, Christina Beckhold-Russ uh, from Samsung's Next Ventures. Uh, hey, uh, Christina, great that you took the time to talk today. Thanks so much for having me. Now, so uh, let's talk first about uh, yourself, I suppose, and then about uh, uh, Samsung Next Ventures. So what uh, what did you do before uh, joining So I've been with Samsung Next for about four and a half years, the first three of which were in New York City, uh, and I've been in Europe for uh, about a year and a half. Uh, Before that, I was with an IoT uh, hardware startup in New York, and before that, I was in in banking. And uh, while I was in banking, I had a lot of friends who were quitting their jobs to join startups or start their own companies and asking me if I wanted to invest in them. And while I love my friends, I don't necessarily want to give them money (laughs) for their startups just because I like them and hope they do well. So I had a couple of of other friends who were sort of in a similar position at the time in New York. That was, was 2011. So we decided to, you know, get together and uh, look at, at a couple of companies and discuss them and hopefully make better decisions than, than just doing it alone. And, you know, the first time we, we got together, we convinced a couple of very nice entrepreneurs to pitch this, you know, group of young professionals over a six pack of beers. 
And over time, that was built into what is now Empire Angels, which is a network and fund of young professionals investing in early stage companies together. Everything from tech enabled to we even did a, a Broadway musical last year. Um, so it's a, a group based out of the US and we launched a London chapter in January. And that was really my entree into the early stage investing space and, and working with early stage companies. You know, young professionals is something that I hear a lot. Define young professionals though. Like how old do you have to be to still to count? Still be. To... <laughs> well, as, as we are inching <laughs> older, that comes, becomes more difficult. I mean, when we started the group, it was, we, we sort of said under 35. I think now we're probably getting into the under 40, but you know, I, I would say generally speaking, it's, it's millennials. So we're, regardless of your age, we found that if you are a millennial interested in investing in startups, that is particularly interesting for a lot of the entrepreneurs who themselves are often millennials. And so the relationship you have as a peer, as an investor can be very different than frankly, on the angel side, the the older white guy that's doing it as a retirement activity. Uh, and so we've just found that there's a really strong affinity between the age group of, of people that are interested in doing this kind of investing with us and the, the kinds of companies that, that we've been investing in. And then you left uh, the US uh, and uh, moved to the UK. Why? Opportunity. Uh, we were looking to expand uh, into Europe. So we had uh, Samsung Next was started out of Mountain View, California. Right. Uh, we expanded, obviously, across the U.S. And I joined the New, the New York team uh, at the uh, sort of early stages of building that that team and an office out. Tel Aviv in Israel was our, our next, uh, our first international office and sort of our next place for expansion. And then Europe, um, more recently. And so we are based out of Berlin. I'm the boots on the ground in London, helping to, you know, cover the UK and Europe from there. But for me, it was just a great opportunity to, to come over and build a new, a new network. And, and to me, I think Europe is, um, sort of a land of opportunity right now from, from sort of a, an innovation and an entrepreneurial perspective. You're just seeing, I think, incredible growth, uh, in terms of the, the number of entrepreneurs that are, uh, starting companies. You know, you're starting to also have some larger successes that are then, you know, breeding a new sort of class of entrepreneurs off of that. And that's the sort of virtuous cycle that you want to see. In a, in a growing and sort of new ecosystem, so uh, that's very it was a very exciting opportunity for me as an investor, and and certainly for Samsung Next. Right. So, what's the fundamental difference? Do you think uh, between uh, investing in the U.S. and investing in Europe? Well, Europe is very fragmented. I mean, frankly, in the in the U.S., you could you could sit yourself just in Silicon Valley, and everything everything is there or comes to you <laughs> there. You know, there's arguments certainly to be made that you know the, the East Coast um, has certainly grown over the last call it five or six years to be a formidable ecosystem as well. Um, but you can sort of sit in one place, and and everything comes to you. And if and frankly, if you're you're an entrepreneur from from elsewhere, you'll probably have to go to one of those places. You know, whether it's for for capital or or to expand your business. You know, in Europe, you've got call it 26 different countries with different cultures and languages and and histories and and so I think the biggest difference I see is is just from an investor perspective sort of figuring out what the opportunities are in different places what makes the you know, talent pool for example in Estonia unique and interesting versus the things that you know you see in London or Berlin each ecosystem is sort of figuring out what it wants to be known for and so discovering what that is just takes some time and it's a lot of relationship building that I think just just takes time to do so fragmented or not, you are covering Europe while sitting in London. So it's still sort of possible, isn't it? Yes. Well, I'm on planes a lot. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm not necessarily expecting everything to come to me. But but you know, I think one of the wonderful 
you know, wonderful things about this job is that I get to, I get to spend my time hunting down great entrepreneurs and companies that are doing interesting things that I don't know about and hear their stories and the things that they're passionate about and figure out if there's, there's some way to help them. Unfortunately, you can, you can do that increasingly with increasing ease thanks to technology and video conferencing and things like that. Right. So are there any particular uh, regional ecosystems that you're paying a lot of attention these days? I think you initially, because we're still, you know, we're, we're a small team. So we only have you know, two investors in Europe right now. And then, you know, we also do M&A and partnerships and, and product um, within the sort of suite of tools within Samsung Next. But from an investment perspective, uh, you know, we're focused on the big e ecosystems like the UK, France, Germany, and the Nordics initially. And then we're trying to build relationships with uh, particularly angel investors in some of the other ecosystems where we just, it's just impossible between two people to cover, to cover everything. Um, and so making sure that we know the people who are finding the really, really early stage stuff that, you know, we could eventually be helpful to um, and trying to, you know, build relationships that way. Right. So let's talk about Samsung Ventures and Samsung Next Ventures then, really. Sure. Uh, so what is it? Uh, what you're looking for? What you invest in? How much you want to invest? What's the thesis and so on? Sure. So Samsung Next as an organization, uh, our, our mission is to help drive innovation within Samsung through the thoughtful integration of hardware and software. And, and we do that through a variety of means, but very much focused on early stage companies and entrepreneurs, recognizing that the innovation around software and services is very likely to come from, come from entrepreneurs out, outside of our company. Uh, IBM didn't build Google. <laughs> so making sure that we we find those those teams, those entrepreneurs, those operators early and support them in the way that makes the most sense. So from an investment perspective, we deploy capital into seed to series B companies, generally up to $3 million per round across the more sort of consumer businesses of Samsung. So mobile consumer electronics display. If you could live on a device that Samsung uh, builds, then then we're interested in talking to you. So that's everything from AI and machine learning to AR, digital health, IoT, mobility, really, really runs the gamut because it's, you know, it's a, it's a big company with lots of interesting products. And so that allows us to, I think, look at a, at a pretty wide set of, of potential companies. We've been investing for uh, about five years now. Again, originally sort of very focused on the U.S., but now, but now very global in our, in our remit. And the, you know, the portfolio has, has grown quite a bit. So seed from Series B, that's a, that's a pretty wide range. And I suppose that uh, investment practices are very different uh, for each of the stages. So how do, how do you manage to do all this range with just, uh, what, two people on the ground in Europe? Uh, it, it's a good question. You know, I think fortunately I have, I have a lot of experience from the seed stage. So, right. and, and at seed stage, you're really looking for, you know, an interesting market opportunity and a really strong team. That's a, that's a different evaluation process from a series B where you actually have, you know, some, hopefully some numbers and some data and some analysis that you can actually do on the business model and, and what it is that, that maybe the technology that they're building. You know, I'd say the vast majority of our investment is usually at the series A. We do, you know, a, a bit of seed generally where in areas where, uh, we think There's a really interesting new technology being built, or and we want to stay close to that market or that that founding team because we feel like there are some really interesting learnings that we could pick up from them early on, um, and vice versa. Um, whereas a Series A or B company is more in a in a position to be able to leverage the Samsung platform in a more meaningful way, and and that really is our goal. You know, we are financial investors and and measured on the the financial performance of our portfolio, but uh, equally so, we are strategic investors who are trying to be value add 
through the relationship that we have with Samsung Electronics and our ability to get our portfolio companies in front of the right decision makers at the right times for the right opportunities. Right. So do you actually specialize on the seed stage companies within the organization? No, I do. Or? I do it all. My last, my last deal was a, was a series A. I'm looking at, we're doing a, and that's, you know, moving into a, a series B raise, uh, for this summer. It, it's really, it's really a mix uh, of things that we look at. And I think all of the investors on our team are, you know, well equipped to evaluate, um, companies, you know, a, a, across that sort of early stage realm. That's really interesting. That's fascinating. So, and you mentioned uh, that uh, there are certain industries that you will be looking for. And you also mentioned that some ecosystems are more interesting in terms of uh, having uh, some specialization in terms of industry. So what do you think are the industries that uh, can be, say, main drivers of the European ecosystem as a whole? You know, I think a lot of it has to do with, uh, well, a couple of things. One is the the talent pool in Europe, I think, is 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 both unique and incredibly competitive. Uh, you know, the, just the, the level of technical talent coming out of a number of the universities really across Europe, um, is, um, can, can, cannot be matched, frankly, by, by, by really any other ecosystem in the world. And so I think that, that lends itself to more, more technical products. The challenge there is as, uh, you know, things that may be coming out of, uh, out of university research or, or labs, um, you know, flipping something from a, from an academic, activity to something that's commercialized. And I think that that is one of the the key challenges that I see a lot of early stage entrepreneurs struggling with um, on the, you know, for the more technical opportunities. Um, but that's that, you know, that's, that's everywhere from, you know, the UK to Germany to elsewhere. And so I think, uh, I think there's a lot of opportunity for entrepreneurship on the more sort of deep technical innovation and just have to figure out sort of how to pair that with the people who understand commercialization and, and how to bring things to market. I also think that within your, our fund has a, has a broad thesis around decentralization. You know, initially internet being, you know, more centralized and then moving to the cloud. And now with, uh, the proliferation of, uh, sensors and increased connectivity and things like 5G, um, there's going to be a lot more data flowing and it can't and, and really shouldn't be fully in the cloud. We should be looking for what are the endpoints that can, can not only be, you know, dumb, sort of pullers of data, but could you do storage and actual processing either at those endpoints or at some waypoint and not always have to go up to the cloud, um, you know, to, to help with things like latency and, and other challenges that will just allow for, for much more rapid development around a lot of these things. Um, and we, uh, we see a lot of interesting, uh, entrepreneurs working in, uh, sort of around the, the concept of decentralization, um, here in Europe. Um, and, and with a, with a very keen eye towards privacy, um, around data. I think that's another area that Europe is, um, quite advanced in, in sort of the political and cultural thinking around is, is privacy and data and ownership of that. And so, uh, we actually launched a, a grant program at the end of last year, um, that we ran here out of Europe that was deploying grants, uh, into, uh, nine different, um, companies and projects yep, that yep, are yep. working on, on different, uh, different applications, uh, in the decentralization space for, for a really wide variety of, of things. Interesting. So we are at the next web conference in Amsterdam and you are, are wearing a speaker badge. So uh, what, uh, what are you gonna, what are you gonna talk about? I will be speaking today on the uh, future generations stage about investing on, in, uh, in IoT. Uh, with an eye towards the future. So what are the ways, you know, IoT is a space that, uh, I think most people either think first of, of automation in the home, which frankly really hasn't taken off <laughs> in the way that maybe, maybe people anticipated, at least not on the timeline. 
and then and then maybe things like smart cities and just deploying lots of sensors and having a lot of data but not necessarily doing a lot with it and so for a variety of reasons i think there are a couple of big megatrends right now that make um IoT uh, applications to solve some of the big world problems like climate change, you know, mobility, urbanization, food. I think those are really interesting areas for entrepreneurs to focus on. And so I'll just be talking through why I think that's the case and some examples of companies I think are are uh, are doing it well. Great. Well, thank you very much uh, for uh, taking the time to uh, talk today and uh, good luck with your uh, speech. Thanks so much. Hello, uh, welcome back to the podcast of tech.eu episode number 120. Uh, we are about to talk about the events that are uh, coming up uh, within the next uh, few weeks uh, here in Europe. Uh, Natalie, what should we be looking forward to? So in the next week, the event I really want you to put on your calendar is Techsylvania, which is held from June 8th to 11th in Cluj, Romania. And Techsylvania is one of the leading technology events in Eastern Europe, and it's bringing together this year over 3,000 founders, investors, technologists, engineers, and startup lo lovers together for inspiration and networking. And something that I really love about Techsylvania is that they have a hackathon and they have a program called the Startup Avalanche, which is an icebreaking event for startups with launch products. So this is a competition and uh, for a very selected group of startups. And for the Startup Avalanche, the grand prize is a hundred thousand euros in investment. So it's always a very kind of, um, kind of high intensity competition. Um, and it takes place from June 10th and 11th. And previous winners include Troop Travel, Brainiant, and Planable. And something else that I really like about Techsylvania is that it puts code and engineering at the heart of it. So there's lots of events uh, around Europe for startups, but oftentimes the development side and the engineering side is something that um, kind of tends to be sidelined or kind of puts in its own conference. Um, but there's plenty of things for developers here and some really interesting speakers this year from places like SoftBank and Fitbit, um, which is one of my favorite things right now. So Techsylvania has been around since 2014, one of the best events bringing together the tech community from Romania and beyond. So if that's something you haven't heard about, check it out for sure. Um, Other events worth mentioning for your calendar this month, um, and you can meet Andre um, at both of these, are Startup Extreme from the 24th to 26th in Boss, Norway. Um, Startup Extreme is a really interesting event, and it's something that uh, it, Robin, our founding editor, um, attended several years ago. Uh, he said the event was so good, he can never go back to it because everything was just so perfect and incredible. He doesn't want to ruin the memories. So that is a very enticing um, option. And then, of course, from June 26th to 28th in Cologne is the Pirate Summit. And Pirate Summit is really kind of undescribable, but it's an event that just at the heart of it is a celebration of entrepreneurship. And you never know what's going to happen next. And it brings together this great group of kind of curated founders, investors, um, people working in the ecosystem. And ever since they changed the date of the event, um, moving it from September to June, I haven't been able to go for the next for the last two years. And I'm still really upset about that. But it's a wonderful experience. And less an event than an experience. And I encourage everyone to try to attend once. Um, it really does change you. So if you are attending either of those, um, be sure to say hi to Andre and he'll be doing lots of interviews at both of those, I can assure you. So if you're looking for more things to do this month, check out the event section of our website or add your event um, at, a, at the link in the show notes. 
I'm really looking forward to that week that uh, first I will go to Norway and then uh, fly right uh, to Germany uh, for the Pirate Summit, uh, which is one of my favorite events uh, in Europe. And by the way, Robin also will be there in uh, Cologne. So if you want to meet us both, uh, come and say hi. Uh, and since Pirate Summit is a pretty small conference, you will definitely see us around. It's not like Web Summit when you can just uh, be there and uh, somebody else you know would be there as well and then you would never see each other during the conference this is totally not the case uh, for the pirate summit which is one of the reasons actually why i like it just exactly the right size yeah and i really was debating whether coming all the way from the u.s to um pirate summit for those three days and i'm very sad to say i don't think i'll make it there this year but you never know what will happen <laughs> this is very wise and grown up of you natalie <laughs> Right. Let us move on to the recommendations. And uh, what I wanted to recommend you to read today is an opinion piece by Martin Bryant, uh, who uh, came on this uh, podcast once a few months ago, and I'm really looking forward to having him again in the future. So Martin is a journalist and a former editor-in-chief at The Next Web, uh, and now he's focusing more on technology and media consulting, but also he sends out a great newsletter that's called Big Revolution. So if, you ha if you're not so a subscriber, yet do check it out so but the piece uh, i'm going to talk about is called uh, uh, quote i miss blind dump enthusiasm for new tech and uh, the piece is uh, quite refreshing i would have to say uh, in the age of technology skepticism of sorts that we have been uh, seeing more and more of and which uh, i think has become the mainstream uh, over the last year or two just think about it uh, five seven years ago when we heard about some new cool technology, whatever it is, we'd be quite interested. And uh, we'd first of all ask how it works and uh, what's under the hood and what good things it can do, what it can be applied to and so on. But now it seems like the first question asked about any new tech is how it can be used for vicious things like mass surveillance or fake news generation or election manipulation or whatever else you can have in mind. And I'm very happy, of course, that we are all now so aware of uh, potential ramifications of technology, so don't get me wrong. But the pure thrill of reading or writing about the new exciting startups just uh, seems to be mostly gone right now. Anywhere, uh, anyway, no matter if you agree or uh, disagree, give this one a read. It's just a very good observation of uh, how things have changed over the past decade and uh, where we are right now. What do you think, Natalie? You read it as well, right? Yeah, and I think it was, it's a really great piece. And I think he hits a number of um, really important and very key observations from kind of he's had this experience in the ecosystem for such a long time. And it really kind of the last week we've seen the uh, Apple um, Web Developers Conference and kind of they launched a number of different things. And kind of the reporting over that was was very interesting. Some of the things that came out most from that event were the cost of some of the new items, the um, kind of privacy um, aspect of some of the, of the new programs and the elimination of things like iTunes. So all the reporting on that event were, was all the really kind of more negative things like high cost, um, privacy, transparency stuff, and the removal of things that people cherished. So I definitely agree with Martin on, on, on a lot of those things. But there is lots to be excited about in new tech, especially if you're um, working in the clean tech space or anything in automotive or transport. Um, lots of really interesting things continue to happen. So it's important to 
kind of hold on to that um, kind of curiosity and um, enthusiasm for for new things. And I think that that at the end of the day um, is something that he really calls for. And it is possible to find still. Um, and I do have to say that, like, just being curious and being enthusiastic about stuff does not necessarily means being not skeptical or not critical or not aware of uh, uh, potential issues that uh, certain tech or a certain product could uh, uh, could bring. But it's just, yeah, the pure thrill, as I said is really something that I do uh, sometimes miss both in uh, press coverage but also in my own reactions to things it's just it's, it's just how things uh, how things change i suppose but also i do see that uh, in the recent couple of months it's not the first uh, thought piece uh, coming about uh, uh, that uh, certain that strikes uh, this sort of uh, points so i do think that right now we are about to hit a better balance let's say, between uh, curiosity and enthusiasm and uh, being critical and understanding the potential negatives of technology. Because I think a good example also is the launch um, at a mobile world of the folding Samsung phone. Oh. And everyone was waiting to find reasons why it was going to fail. They were just saying this is not going to work and kind of approached it with this idea that not this is cool or interesting, but there's no way that this works. And um, I think I think that really kind of captures a lot of what um, Martin's kind of um, bringing. Yeah, yeah, but also but also it failed spectacularly. (laughs) It was just so bad. Yes, but but I think the the tone, the tone of it was even before it had come out and was released to the press for, for testing um, the tone of it was, there's no way that this works, that you can't do this instead of thinking, Hey, wow, it's amazing that they've made this sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. But some very good observations by Martin there. Maybe it's just a certain generation of tech reporters getting old and grumpy. True. Anyway, what did you want to talk about? So this week, my recommendation is from an article from Sifted that's titled, um, quote, VCs have to go big, go brand, or go home, end quote. For full disclosure, I will say I don't agree with many of the claims that are made in the piece, but what it has done is generate a lot of great conversations online and off about the nature of venture capital in Europe, which I think has become a really great contribution. So in the piece, the author contrasts the quote unquote success of large big money VCs as compared to those that have made content marketing and strategy a key part of their repertoire. So the author suggests that the cool VCs such as the family or Daphne, which are both based in Paris, are able to generate lots of follow on buzz for their companies through their strategy and approach, which in turn helps them raise more money and attention down the line. Well, I'm not saying that that's wrong, but I think that the conclusion that there's this dichotomy between just rich VCs, so rich in capital and networks, and those that are on brand is wrong. And similarly, I think reducing companies like the family down to their branding as their only unique USP is also wrong. But what you see if you've really studied the European VC landscape is that there's tons of firms that do not fit either of these parameters, especially those in deep tech. And they're doing just fine, especially in terms of success. In our last report, we identified over 2,000 different firms investing in European startups. And by reducing them down to these two poles, either they're big or they're cool, and suggesting that firms that don't exhibit these traits are, quote, doomed for the leftovers is also wrong. Um, 
and I have a hard time um, considering startups as leftovers. Um, I, I just don't really agree with it. But I do think it's very um, worthy to raise the point about branding, especially it's very interesting and something that you're seeing more and more of. So in the show notes, we'll link to the piece. And I suggest you have a look and see what you think. Um, and also put the link of the article into Twitter or your favorite social media platform just to see some of the great commentary um, on on the piece. So lots of great comments from European VCs um, weighing in um, and to give a lot of insight into the VC landscape itself, also insight into Europe's most prominent VCs and of how they see themselves and if they consider them as cool or uncool or if they don't care. <laughs> It's very. It's been um, really kind of an interesting conversation happening online. Yeah, it's a really interesting topic, I have to say. And also, I used to work on uh, branding of an accelerator, which is sort of VC branding as well. And I think what's happening in particular is that uh, the the definition of cool uh, has changed and is still changing. So whatever can be considered cool right now will probably not uh, be considered uh, so in, in in just a couple of years' time. Definitely. And also the question is, another question is, who is there to decide what, to, what is cool and what is not cool? Uh, it's mainly about, it's mainly about match, I would say. It's not, it's not necessarily about uh, some singular definition of, uh, of a VC being cool, but just about the match between a certain startup and a certain VC and their values and their style, if you will. But I wouldn't also try and find the very, uh, the, the silver bullet in, uh, in this. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And it's really um, great comments of what people have been saying about it and kind of what's important and how um, companies, especially VC firms, position themselves in the market, how they reach new uh, new um, potential companies to fund is, is a very kind of compelling um, area of analysis. So something, something that um, has been very interesting to follow. Yeah, it will be really interesting to look into it as well. Right. So it is time to wrap it up for today. Uh, that's it for now. I do hope you enjoyed uh, listening to us today. If you are not a subscriber yet, do subscribe today on your favorite podcast app. And if you are listening on iTunes, please take a minute or two to leave us a review. This will help others find the show easier. Tell a friend or colleague about the podcast and follow our updates on Twitter at tech underscore EU. Audio engineering for this podcast is done by SoundPulse. That's sound-pulse.com. Please feel free to email us with any questions, suggestions, and opinions at andre at tech.eu and natalie at tech.eu. Natalie, thank you so much for joining today. Do enjoy your mountains and nature and uh, lots of wood as far as I can see on the camera in the house you're in. Yes, thank you. Thanks very much. I, I'm really enjoying um, kind of getting a little bit of distance and kind of looking at the European technology landscape from an alternative perspective. So do you already see uh, uh, your uh, perception changing looking from the other side of the ocean? Um, so where I'm located now um, in, in Utah is kind of the area they call Silicon Slopes, which has um, a kind of it is a very interesting topic in itself, but has a huge tech conference of 20,000 people um, comes every year. A lot of um, successful unicorn companies here. Um, and it's been very interesting talking with some of the players in this ecosystem and learning about how they see the European technology scene. Um, it's been very interesting. So um, I look forward to being able to share some of that with you guys on the podcast um, in the coming weeks and months, possibly. Yeah, I'll be very happy to, to hear that. For now, though, thanks a lot for listening. Enjoy the rest of your week and talk to you next Wednesday. Bye-bye.